Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Greetings and welcome to our deep sea domain. This is under consultation an episode by episode podcast type situation through the UK's greatest video game challenge TV show, Games Master. I am one of your hosts, Luke Owen, swelling to erect proportions. And standing buttock to buttock with those erect proportions, I am Ash Versus. This episode aired on the 27th of February 1997, Tomb Raider still tops the video game charts, Ransom still tops the box office, but we've got a new chart topper with no doubts, Don't Speak. A song that I did not have to go, hmm, do I remember this one? Because for some reason, Luke, it just sticks in my head. Yeah, this is one of those ones you're like, oh, cool, yeah. I know everything about this song already. I don't even need to head to Wikipedia or to YouTube to find out anything about this. Every single frame of the video, every single note of the song is embedded within my subconscious. And same. And why couldn't we had this to discuss for multiple, multiple weeks when some of the dreck that we've had to cover? This is a great song. No doubt I've had a number of hits. You know, Gwen Stefani had a number of hits by herself as well. But Don't Speak is the one that it will always come back to for both the band and the individual. It started as a very different song. Not just a song that is about heartbreak. It's a song about heartbreak within the band itself. And there's the moments in the the music video where Gwen is literally singing the words that this song is about to the band member this song is about. You know, if you just sort of watch the music video without that knowledge, it is just a, it it just looks like a sort of a a moment between band members, but sort of with that context, it adds a whole new dynamic to the performance that that Gwen is giving. It is a remarkable, remarkable song. You're right, like, you know, I think there are other No Doubt songs that will always crop up in this time period. Just a Girl is another one that was used in Captain Marvel. I think like that is the, 
the upbeat no doubt song that will get used in in 90s movie montages but this one is like for your heart-wrenching moments yeah it's probably the song that they are most known for and yet it also started as an upbeat song because this song was first kind of written and mooched around the band when gwen and tony were still together it was much more kind of bouncy pop 70s rock there were a couple of live versions from like 94 that kind of show that song in its early stage Then the breakup happened and Gwen was like, I'm rewriting all these lyrics. It's going to change to the key of C minor. And that's the song as it is now. And also the music video shoot will probably be very uncomfortable because they've been together seven years. Yeah, it's a long, long-term relationship that then broke up. I mean, you know, but credit to them. It could have ended up as a very horrible scenario where neither of them talk about it or one of them is not featured. But the fact that both of them are there adds uh, another level of gravitas to the to both the performance uh, live on tape and in the music video. Outside the UK, it did pretty well as well. It made number one on the Billboard's Hot 100 Airplay chart. That's because... It got a lot of radio play. However, it was not put onto the chart for the Billboard Hot 100 since there was no commercial single released in the United States, which was a prerequisite to be on the Billboard Hot 100. Imports did not count. And in addition to the UK, where the charting did count, it reached the top position in Belgium, the Netherlands, Norway, Sweden and Switzerland. And in Australia, it hit the number one spot for eight weeks. Is it my favourite No Doubt song? I think it probably is. Uh, I've got it featured on various different playlists over on on Spotify. Uh, It is a track that I do listen to multiple times every year, and I never get tired of it either. I feel like I am now in a more uh, Just A Girl vibe, but I'm also quite big into Gwen Stefani singles. and stuff. I I think Gwen Stefani is a very, very talented performer, very good writer, and a really, really interesting singer. I even got her Christmas album from uh, a few years back which is mostly Tosh, but the main single from it, You Make It Feel Like Christmas, is a certified Christmas banger. Like, it is a genuinely brilliant Christmas song that I think more people should have on their Christmas rotations. In other little bits of TV and music news, on the 24th of February, the final episode of The British Empire was broadcast on BBC One. Nice work with your R's there. Thank you very much. Basically, the show that Chris Barry left Red Dwarf for. I would say I rewatched a large amount of the British Empire over lockdown. That's not true. I was in the same room as it being rewatched. Looking back on it now, it is horrific at times. Just some of the things that happen, like the babies being brought up, like in the drawers, Colin, just all of Colin. I just look at it and I guess it's maybe because at this point in my life, I've done so many risk assessments, so many health and safety things. And I just watched the British Empire and it's like a fucking waking nightmare. I did watch the British Empire because it's Chris Barry and I was a Red Dwarf fan. I don't remember a whole mess of it, but I do remember the finale very, very clearly. I remember very clearly how the show ends, which is British wakes up on a bus to discover that the entire show was a dream and he was on his way to the job interview for the 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 the, the center that he works at. 
I just remember that very, very vividly. It, it, it's the um, the who killed Jr. Watch him call it walking out the shower. That kind of that kind of ending because it was all a dream. How else do you end it though? Because it got so ludicrous and ridiculous. How how else do do you wrap that up other than going? Well, it never happened. It's what could have been. Because the problem is, as a show, it just kept escalating up and up and up and up and up and up and up. To the point where, what did you do? Did you suddenly make Britus the man of success that he thought he was? Would that be a cop out? Yeah, it's it's a tricky position to be in. Other, you know, I I like the British Empire, if only because that's the reason why Ace Rimmer exists. Because when Barry was, you know, doing Red Dwarf and he was going to leave Red Dwarf to go and do the British Empire, playing what is essentially more or less the same character of Rimmer, he asked for them to write a cool character for him to play because he didn't want to get typecast as smug asshole. So we now have Ace Rimmer because of the British Empire. And smoke me a kip, I'll be back for breakfast. What a great character to have. Like, you know, if the British Empire gave us nothing, we at least will always have that. I think. The problem is, and I mean this in the nicest way possible, Chris Barry is very, very good at playing a smug asshole. Oh, yeah. Rimmer, Britus, Hillary in Tomb Raider, even though a butler, still an incredibly smug asshole. Absolutely. He's very, very good at doing that. In the music news, on the other hand, on February 24th, the Spice Girls win Best Video for Say You'll Be There and Best Single for Wannabe at the Brit Awards. However... It is Jerry Halliwell's Union Jack dress that hogs the headlines the following day. Famous outfits like these being sold for huge sums of money today were really only an excuse for most people here at the auction. What everyone was waiting for was Jerry Halliwell's first public appearance in the UK since she left the Spice Girls. She arrived for the final lot, the highlight of the auction, the Union Jack dress made famous by its appearance at the Brit Awards last year. The dress made headlines then, and today one of the keenest bidders was the Sun newspaper. They were beaten in the end, though, by the Hard Rock Hotel in Las Vegas, who paid £36,200. All of that money is going to charity. Thank you so much. I really appreciate this. Well, it's not so much the dress, it's more the lack of dress. It's the how little dress there was. I I don't even think the full flag was on the dress, to be honest. I remember being at a friend's house probably the week after the Brit Awards, and we were there playing Mega Drive. I think the Spice Girls came on the radio, or something along those lines. However it came up, I was talking to my friend's nan, about the Spice Girls and how and I, the fact that I liked the Spice Girls and she just turned to me and said like oh really I bet you just like that dress don't you and it was like uh, uh, you know f- hard to find the words hard being a key word there hard to find the words of, of how to respond to this because I am at this point just a, a 12 year old oh an 11 year old at this point that is you know uh, becoming a man or whatever but it was like a sort of like it, it feels like a real sexual awakening for many many young men of my age yeah there were a lot of people that probably dismissed the Spice Girls until that moment and suddenly hello it's like the Doctor Who thing where you know the dad to be like oh the sci-fi rubbish Ooh, there's the companion in the short skirt. I, recently, I was having an argument with one of my uh, wrestling co-hosts, Dan Layton, about who was the better Spice Girl out of... Because he's a posh guy. He, he thought posh was the best Spice Girl. Th- that was exactly the face I pulled as well, this sort of confused, confuddled look of, no, no absolutely she is not. So, and I argued that, that Jerry was the best Spice Girl, and his exact response was, you just like Jerry because of that dress. Uh, I Well, I put it up as a Twitter poll, and Jerry won out quite handily that she was the better Spice Girl of the two. Well, I'm going to come with an outside vote. I'd have gone for Melcy. 
Well, uh, do you know what? A lot of the replies were like, you have missed the actual best Spice Girl, which is Mel C. A lot of people argued for, for Bunsen as well. But my poll was not about who is the best Spice Girl. It was who of the two were the better Spice Girl. Between Posh and Jerry? Yeah. It's Jerry. Jerry. She did everything. It's the one that can actually sing. She literally did everything. Without her, that band would have gone nowhere. If the Spice Girls did a reunion and Jerry wasn't there, it would flop. When the Spice Girls do a reunion and Posh isn't there, it's a case of, oh well. That'll do us. Oh no, we don't have to auto-tune her. (laughs) But Ash, before we get into the episode itself, have we got anything in the magazine? We do. We have a new issue with Mario on the cover because, of course, this magazine comes out as the Nintendo 64 is hitting the high streets here in the UK. Now, we're not going to talk about that now because, as we have done in the past, there will be a bonus episode between seasons covering the launch of the N64 here in the UK. But as I flip through the Gamesmaster News Network, past the initial story of the Manx TT Saturn conversion arriving in the office, I see a one-page news article that is both an early Christmas present, as we're recording this in November, and a late Christmas present, as this is being released in January, for you, Mr. Luke. I'm very, very excited to hear this. You you teased me with this. You tickled me with this before we started recording. Oh dear, the meter's racing already. <laughs> yeah, so I'm, I'm uh, ready to burst with uh, the excitement. The headline is simply Castlevania X. Okay, now we're talking. Bit of Castlevania news. At long last, we haven't had any Castlevania news on this show in ages. Konami unveiled their eagerly awaited PlayStation Vampire Fest. That's the one. Perhaps the best of the Castlevania games, no less. I would not disagree with that at all. I think the Game Boy Advance games are vastly underrated or at least underappreciated until now because now you can go and play them again. Oh, yes. But I think they got forgotten in the shadow of Symphony of the Night. 100% 100% go and download the Advanced Collection uh, on the... You can get it on the PlayStation 4. That's where I played them um, because some of those games are absolutely brilliant. Aria of Sorrow in particular is absolutely awesome. It is, I would argue, almost as good. I guess as a portable version goes, as good as Symphony of the Night. I think the second one is often overlooked. The first and the third of the three Game Boy Advance games, they get all the limelight. But that middle chapter, that one gets overlooked. But anyway, the news article. Although from the screenshot here, you can tell Castlevania's 32-bit debut is still very snugly attached to its platform roots, The main difference between this and earlier chapters in Konami's epic vampire hunting saga is the inclusion of spanking new RPG elements. The game now features a hoofing great map to explore. I think hoofing is an accurate description of that map. It is a massive old map, twice over no less because you get to do it in reverse or upside down. Plus a series of accessible scrolling menus. That's a weird thing to highlight in a news article, but it is true. That, that is also uh, a, a DVD release of a movie that has no special features, so interactive menu is, is one of your options. But as you hack your way through the game's story and the relevant levels, you'll collect and build up your inventory, magic, weapons, armour and the like, enabling you to flick to the relevant icon and tailor your kit to each situation. You can even go so far as to change your character's clothes, all Dommel-like it, because he loves Barbie dress-up world. 
It is. It, that is, yes, you essentially pallet swap yourself every now and again. Another superb feature is the ability to morph from your humanoid form into a bat or mist cloud. Yes, once you get the power up for it. Rather than mere novelty value, this plays a major part in the game, allowing you to access certain areas of the map you normally wouldn't be able to get to. The soundtrack, as in its predecessors, is orchestral to say the least. and the graphics themselves are some of the classiest we've seen on a PlayStation platformer. They may look 16-bitish from these shots, but just wait until you see them in action. From the levels we've played, it's also extremely evident how beautiful the handling is. Castlevania X would certainly seem like it's going to be huge, even at this early stage. More on this next month. It is the game that births the term Metroidvania, because up until that point it was just Metroid games that had this, but once Symphony of the Night comes out, all of a sudden the, the portmanteau of Metroidvania uh, is born, and any game that then becomes a explore the dungeon, explore the castle, explore the whatever type situation becomes a Metroidvania game. Uh, I have got so much love for Symphony of the Night. I think anyone that listens to this podcast on the regular will know that I love Symphony of the Night, and all of those Metroidvania, Castlevania games, as well as the, the original lot as well, and I have played through Symphony of the Night multiple times over. I absolutely adore the absolute shite out of that game. The soundtrack that, that um, you know, they were just talking about there is one of the best in the entire franchise. It's so, so great. I even used it in uh, Series 5. sort of like orchestral singing i used as our intro portion for the podcast because it was quite heavenly my biggest regret with regards to games that i lost or that went missing or i think got caught in the now to me at least infamous flood at the family home where the water tank burst i had an american copy of castlevania symphony of the night with the soundtrack CD, the double case. Pricey, pricey to buy that now. Mate, I'd be selling it now. I mean, I don't need it, <laughs> but I'd be selling it. But just to have that soundtrack, because it is such a good soundtrack. It's amazing. Good evening and welcome to the last Games Master, possibly ever, because I've received a slightly worrying fax memo from Channel 4. It says, to the most important person at Games Master, uh, we are sorry to report that the number of complaints for this series has risen to an all-time high. Dominic is still making jokes deemed too offensive and controversial for this time slot. Well, I'm quite surprised to tell you the truth. I don't think we've ever said or done anything remotely dodgy on this show, but I'm willing to admit if I'm wrong. So, for the whole of this show, we're going to have an offence-ometer running any time we say or do anything unsuitable for an early evening time slot it's going to register on that little meter and if it's too high by the end of the show then we are going to catch it okay so with that considered then um, uh, with a much sadder pantalets you're kidding i can't with me sandwiched between two girls for the last time i can't say that either with an altogether bigger lump in... Oh, this is pathetic. 
Oh, forget. Let's just go to today's event. Ash, I think you can probably tell, not only just from this opening, but also the, the closing feature of this episode, this is a production that really, truly believes and knows this is the final episode of Games Master. There is no more series after this. This is absolutely it. Dominic will be off to pastures new. Everyone on this crew will be off to pastures different. This is the last episode of Games Master in every single person on this set's opinion. Yeah, I, I, I absolutely adore the entire conceit of this episode, which is we are going to get ourselves cancelled. It's almost like 2022 existed in 1997. This is a show that's getting itself kicked off the air. And like, it's, it's not just like, you know, the offensometer that runs throughout this. This is the most knobgag laden heavy episode we've had probably since the early days of Games Master. And the final feature we get in this episode may as well have been a cast off from the Gore special. Really, really should have been. And I just love that they just go in heavy. It's like, well, here we have the offensometer, which will be running through the show. The, any transgressions will register on the dial. And then Dom just starts off. So with a much sadder pant, okay, no, wait, that didn't work. With me sandwiched between two girls, nope. With an altogether bigger lump. And on to today's event. Exactly. And every time he says one of these things, the offensive meter just creaks up and it creaks up and it creaks up. It is, it's a really fun uh, show-long gag. And yeah, I, I, I love it as a conceit of a show that knows it's ending, so is going to end itself. They're ending Games Master on their own terms. And that continues with the title challenge, which is Triple X Action. But what will they be playing, Games Master? There are few games which demand more skill and accuracy than the one I've chosen for this, my final event, the excellent Time Crisis. Quite simply, the aim is to shoot the enemies without being shot. The test of good players, however, is not whether they can do this, but how quickly. That's the basis of tonight's event. This one I'm looking forward to with relish. This is a heck of an event here. This is playing the arcade game Time Crisis competitively. Like We don't find that out uh, at this point here. We find that out in, in a, a few moments' time. Two people who are going to be playing through the hardest part of Time Crisis to basically do it as quickly as possible. And it is. it, it seems like it's a very simple challenge on the outset. You know, just get through the arcade game Time Crisis. It doesn't feel like it's complex as, say, the, uh, the virtual cop challenges that we had with, with Martin earlier in the show. But because they're playing this on the hardest levels, it really does feel very, very tricky. We've had, what, a good few virtual cop challenges now. We've had at least two. Yeah, we've had two. We had one in Series 5 and one in Series 6. It's nice to see Namco get a click of the gun at this because Time Crisis to me is more special than Virtua Cop. I just have fonder memories and I love the foot pedal mechanic. Yeah. Always my favourite thing. When we shot our original Patreon promo in uh, Heart of Gaming, it was that Time Crisis cabinet that we gravitated towards for the one section because it, it was just, it was right there. Uh, I've mentioned it before, my bowling alley uh, was a Sega World, then was not a Sega World. But uh, I later on in its lifetime, these were the games they had left over, was just Time Crisis or House of the Dead, those types of things. So I really got into playing, particularly Time Crisis 2. 
played a hell of a lot of Time Crisis 2 down at the arcades or down in my local bowling alley. So I've got so many, I've got more fonder memories of Time Crisis than I do Virtual Cop because I didn't have Virtual Cop at my local arcades. We, oh, let me think, we had Quasar and we had Laser Quest. And I think one of them had, I think Quasar had Virtual Cop and Laser Quest had the Time Crisis. And I just, I never got on with Virtual Cop. It's a very, very good game. This is not me saying it's a bad game. It's just like Virtua Fighter. I didn't fully get on with it, but Time Crisis, I absolutely did. And I also got it for the PlayStation when it came out. It sat snugly alongside my copy of Die Hard Trilogy and the, uh, I think, Logic 3 light gun that looked very much like the Lawgiver from the, from the Stallone Judge Dredd movie, but which also had the force feedback, which was something missing from the official time crisis gun on the playstation my local quasar uh, had killer instinct so uh, we didn't have any shoot maps down at our local quasar you just had a kill em up we just had a kill em up that unfortunately i kept trying to play like street fighter and that is not how you get on with killer instincts as i as i learned much later on in life but as you said the challenge itself it's a time trial it's all about how quickly they can finish it off <laughs> Tony, let's start with Time Crisis. You, how, how much do you play the game then on average? Uh, I would think maybe in, t in terms of money, maybe £20 per week. Yeah. Yes. So you go around a lot of different arcades, do you? And what's, yeah. what's the, it's the kind of plan what, to, to leave your initials as the high score on each one? Yeah, I try to do that whenever uh -huh. I see a high score. And, uh, and try, try and beat it. How, how good are you then? I mean, do you, do you get the top scores on, on most of the machines? Um, most of them, but... Occasionally, I run into troubles with uh, one good player in particular. Uh, what, uh, what does he go by? Yes, he, uh, his initial is XXX, and um, I, I'm finding quite hard to uh, beat this record. He's, yeah. he's, the, he's the one guy, yes. guy you've got difficult with. I like that this challenge has a narrative to it, which is this guy, Tony, you know, he's spending 20 quid a week playing Time Crisis at various arcade machines but he's always being haunted by this one man well this this person he doesn't know whether it's man or not but he he's being haunted by these three letters of xxx no matter how good he gets at time crisis he cannot unseat xxx and if he does when he goes back the next time xxx has replaced that score that he's just put there this man is just haunting him wherever he goes and Dom then sets up the, the gag of this, which is like, you know, if this was a cheesier show, we'd have told you that we've tracked down Triple X and you're going to play him in a challenge now. And we are that show because we did track down Triple X and here he is. I just like that this has a really fun narrative to it. It paints a really nice picture uh, in the mind of the viewer. Well, now, I mean, I suppose, I mean, if we were some kind of like really cheesy kind of show like Silla Black, surprise, surprise, this is where we'd say, right, you know, we've spent lots and lots of money tracking him down and, you know, let's bring on Mr. Triple X. You know, I mean, that would be, that'd be quite funny, wouldn't it? Yeah. Hysterical, wouldn't it? <laughs> Prepare to be that. hystericized then, Tony Lung, because we have found him. Here is your nemesis, Mr. X. Nice to meet you. Triple tell, tell us your real name. Philip Groves. Philip Groves, what do you do for a living? Uh, sales rep for an optical company. So, basically, when, when you're driving around doing your sales repping, what do you like nothing more than doing? Um, sometimes I'll spot uh, an arcade that has time crisis in there and I'll pop in and uh, have a few games. And you quite, yeah. quite literally littered the country with the Triple X yeah, right. on it. How do you feel, Tony? You're going to be going first under the watchful gaze of Mr. Triple X. Is that going to add a little bit of tension there? Mm, 
not a problem. Yeah. It's not. Okay, yeah. good. This could be it. This could yeah. be the time to leap ahead of Mr. Triple X. And we meet Mr. X, Mr. Triple X. His real name is Philip. He's a sales rep for an opticals company. By opticals, I'm actually thinking the things you get behind bars. They never clarify it, but I'm just like, Maybe it, yeah, he's the guy that makes sure that you get a decent measure of whiskey. Uh, yeah, I, I I didn't give him much mind to be honest. I was, again, I was just enjoying the picture that was painted uh, of the this guy, the sales rep, who's just driving up and down the country, and rather than uh, going to see uh, hookers in various different uh, areas of the country, he's instead going to arcades instead to play Time Crisis, and is littering the country with triple X on Time Crisis arcade machines up and down the United Kingdom. Just love this idea of going into your local arcade. Like if you watch this episode, then you go to your local arcade and Mr. X had been there and you're just watching and you know, you go into Time Crisis and all of a sudden there's that top score, XXX, like <gasps> he's been. I wonder if this would become like a Banksy thing where there's suddenly lots of triple X's in the high scores. It's like, is it him? Is it an impersonator? Is it Neil Buchanan? Oh. Is it me? <laughs> I, I love this idea of it. You know, it's, it's almost like King of Kong style, like documentary could be done about this guy as he goes up and down the country to try and get his name at the top of every time crisis machine possible. I, I think it's, it's a wonderful little story for this. And it's, Tony seems massively caught off guard by the whole thing. You know, this is his opportunity to not only prove that he's dead good at time crisis, but also to beat his nemesis, his Moriarty, if you will, at this game at long last. I like to think that Philip and Tony had already met because obviously there'd be a green room, there'd be a chance to practice on time crisis. And they just didn't say. Like he knew he was going to be facing someone, but he didn't know who that person actually was. So it was just like, oh, my name's Tony, your name's Philip. Cool. Oh, you like time crisis? I like time crisis too. I would love it if it was only like when they got out on stage, it's like, it's me, Austin. You know, it's your, it's your it's your arch nemesis all along. And Tony says it's not going to be a problem in a way that says it's definitely going to be a problem. Yeah, he almost looks. He has got the look of a man who has resigned himself to the idea he is not taking home a Games Master Golden Joystick today. But Dom says they're going to get their weapons in their hands, ready to shoot at a moment's notice. <laughs> And whilst they pucker up their gaming power, it's time to go to a news special. In less than 48 hours' time, for 250 notes, you'll be able to lay your grubby hands on the most powerful games machine ever, the awesome N64. Already over 3 million have been sold in Japan and America since its release seven months ago, and demand is quite literally outstripping supply. The three launch titles are the excellent Pilot Wings, the disappointingly clumsy Shadows of the Empire, and of course Mario 64, quite possibly the greatest video game ever. And it is a very special news item here. As Ash mentioned earlier, we're going to cover this uh, in a special bonus podcast in between Series 6 and Series 7, like we did with the PlayStation and Saturn launches. It is the European launch of the N64. Amazing that we have had an entire series of Games Master here that has almost felt like it has been dedicated to the N64, particularly those early days of Series 6. There were so many challenges, news items and reviews on the N64. And we've gone through all 18 episodes of this show and the console still isn't here. It still is not on these shores. The biggest controversial point of Games Master Series 6 was around the N64 and the console is not here yet. It is, it is out after this series has finished. I find it mad, but in a kind of a brilliant way. And it's so nice then for a series that has been so dedicated to the N64 to end off its final episode, its final episode ever of Games Master, with a new special about how 
it's launched in two days time man it's a shame there wasn't just like one extra can you imagine the last minute scrap around they'd have had if it had actually launched between episode 17 and 18 just the the last minute filmed insert dom and the angels might have been down the big hmv in oxford street it would have been crazy but as it is this just went out a couple of days before and we have that lineup that is like it's three to me really strong games but also wow it's a very restrictive starting lineup particularly for a console with four controller ports particularly for a console that at this point has been out for you know a year and change elsewhere and we've had multiple games reviewed in this show multiple games played on this show and yet those games aren't here at launch all we have are these three titles of pilot wing 64 shadows of the empire and mario 64 and kind of dom's review of those is that pilot wing 64 good shadows of the empire disappointing mario 64 probably the best video game ever made so you have got a bit of a a smorgasbord there i guess most people will just go for mario 64 and possibly pilot wings unless you're a huge star wars nerd but it's about like the and here are the other titles we've got coming up soon we've got tura we've got wave race we've got blast core we've got goldeneye we've got star fox we've got iss and mario 64 and even zelda though that will require uh the the double d expansion it is interesting Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) but it is you're right again and we kind of talked about this at the start of the series so many of these n64 games that came out early doors there were only two players and like we've got a launch you know three launch titles here none of which are multiplayer games so we will cover this in the special episode but launch day nintendo 64 three titles available luke can you guess or remember what i got with my nintendo 64 on launch day did you get shadows of the empire i did do you know why because you had the book in that partly also because it was the only one available <laughs> next one was i had the, i had the money saved for mario 64 but i didn't get that for another week and change and then pilot wings despite my love of pilot wings we discussed it the other week i didn't get that for like a good few months until after i was done with shadows of the empire and i picked it up second hand at that point that's kind of typical nintendo in a way which is to always understock uh, I will never forget uh, working in GameStation on the launch of the Wii. And we had been sent loads of stuff by Nintendo, lots of um, you know marketing material for it. So we had loads of posters for it in the window. We had a trailer that was played on the, uh, the big CRT TV that we had on the uh, desk that was there to be played with games, but also to kind of show off, you know, the latest releases and this and the other. They sent us loads of stuff, take pre-orders, and we had, I think, around about between 35 and 40 pre-orders for the Wii, uh, one of which was myself. And on day of launch, we were sent two. And they did that on purpose because it creates scarcity and it creates rarity and it creates it drives up the demand for for more of them and so we then had you know 40 people come in on the launch day for the Wii expecting to pick up their Nintendo Wii and we could not give them to it we had to tell the news Nintendo did not send us enough and very sorry we will have to call you when the next shipment comes in and when we got the next shipment in, they sent us three. And it was a long period of time before we'd even fulfilled 
our pre-orders before we could just put them on the shelf for sale. It's a it's a, a ludicrous way of doing business, but it's they did it with the um, the NES, the NES Mini, and they did it with the SNES Mini as well. It was it weirdly I remember getting the Wii less than I do remember getting the N64. But I know it was a midnight launch. I remember that my local game opened at midnight for that. And I remember going there because I only lived like um, a 10, 15 minute walk for my local game at the time. And I know they were short stock. They, they had more stock than you did. But I was one of the last people to get one. I think maybe another 10 people behind me did. But there was a lot of people. Like It was the biggest pre-launch queue I've, I've seen, certainly in the area I was living in. And the only thing that could come, even come close was actually uh, here in Croydon going to the GTA 5 launch for the uh, 360. That was that was quite a big launch here. But yeah, with the N64, and particularly with the game selling out, I don't blame Nintendo for that one. I blame my local Argos because they were just kind of a shit local Argos. <laughs> No, yeah. In our case, it was very much the Nintendo thing. We didn't even do a midnight uh, opening for the Wii because they'd only sent us two, and one of which I took home because it was mine. Because um, I, I, it came out, it was launched on my birthday, and we got sent it like two days before the launch. So I took it home on the Wednesday. Um, all I had was uh, Wii Sports that came boxed with it because uh, thingy hadn't arrived. The Zelda game hadn't arrived yet. Um, so we only had one of them so we didn't do a midnight opening we did do for the ps3 and we did do for the 360 because we had bloody loads of those and enough to fulfill the pre-orders and to sell extra ones as well but yeah we didn't do one for the nintendo week because like well there's literally no point in this yeah i think that's the only midnight launch i've done for a console games i've done it before but uh yeah yeah, yeah we did yeah we did it for a few games then we did it for some of the gta's as well like when they came out because I, it was a real like height of gta releases like san andreas and and things like that the gta 5 one for me will always stick in my head because uh i mean you've seen that area of, of croydon it's pedestrianized and there was the slowest police chase i've ever seen there was a guy running away from a police car struggling to hold his trousers up and the police car was following him kind of bemused like if an actual car could look bemused that's what was happening because this guy genuinely seemed to think he'd be able to outrun a car with his trousers around his knees and there was about there was loads of us stood there and we all just kind of stood watching it go past like a very weird doppler effect just kind of like croydon in it croydon <laughs> on a thursday night my uh my friend has got one horror story from a uh uh, a midnight opening it was the midnight when i worked with the game station they did the midnight opening for the playstation 2 playstation 2 was sold for 249.99 and he made a massive cock up and it haunts him to this day in fact that you scan the thing and then you pick up the card machine and you input 249.99 and then they pay for it on their card uh he missed off one of the nines so someone got a playstation 2 at a midnight launch for 24.99 <laughs> exactly. <Ooh. laughs> exactly. So yeah, he uh he said any time anyone made a mistake, uh if you build something wrong at Game Station, he would always be like, Don't worry about it. I once sold a PlayStation 2 on day of launch for 25 quid. Still some way off though is Zelda, which will run on the HDD peripheral. Expect all these games to have the number 64 after them. Cause for celebration then among UK game fans, but we'll leave you for now with some exclusive footage of Doom 
64 slated for an April release. Back to this uh, little news item here. The two things, obviously, that jump out to me aren't just you know the, the list of titles and everything. It's Dominic Diamond talking about the 64 Double D and saying that you know the new Zelda game will have to run on the the, the DD, but also. And I'm glad to see that we got this on the show because I wasn't expecting it. Exclusive footage of Doom 64, which is a game that I think has been it, it has been praised more now uh, than it was when it came out. Because I think when it came out, people were quite down on Doom 64, mostly because they couldn't see the <sighs> thing. But in sort of modern day parlance, I think people are a bit kinder to Doom 64 and now I'll hold that up as one of the better entries into the franchise. I mean, I've got it on the PC, I've got it on the Xbox, I've got it on the Switch. Bloody love Doom 64. Other than Thatcher's tech base, it's my default pick up and play Doom now just because you just get straight into it and it it's crunchy. It's good it's, times. Oh, it's a very crunchy game. I've got it downstairs on the PlayStation 4. It's a really, really good game. But yeah, it's, it's kind of funny that it when it came out, it was, it was mocked amongst Doom fandom, amongst video game players as well. Not quite so much as perhaps Doom 3 was. Uh, but at least now people are into Doom 64 as where people, I don't think anyone's really, really re-evaluating Doom 3 just yet. I think some of the developers of Doom 3 have re-evaluated their life choices. but Maybe. And the thing, Doom 64 essentially does just feel like Doom. Doom 3 yeah. doesn't. No, Doom 3 feels like, you know, dead space. They're just trying, trying to be more like that. Oh, mate, we're going to get complaints from the Dead Space fans. <laughs> okay, we have got Tony Leung against his time crisis nemesis, Mr. Triple X. Standing buttock to buttock with me is Derek Lynch from Namco Wonder Park. <laughs> Derek, what's the, what's the kind of best general tip you give the guys? Well, they have to go through accuracy and the ability to predict where the enemy's coming from. Okay, and, and they know the game inside out, though, these they, guys. They, they do, they do. They're oh. the best. Back to the challenge, we've got Derek Lynch in the booth, because, of course, we have It's a Namco Arcade game. And he talks about how, like, you you know, you need to go for accuracy and predict where the enemies are going to pop out from. But I would say that these two lads know this game very well and won't need to predict anything. They will just very much know. I actually think that these two lads could turn around and go to Derek well, actually, and give him <laughs> some advice and insight because these two are to Time Crisis as Martin Mathers was to Virtua Cop. These two are the experts, really, as opposed to Derek, who has to be a jack-of-all-trades, master of none, just by covering everything to do with Namco and Namco Wonder Park. And so we've got Tony up first, and... Like you would imagine, he just gets through this very, very quickly. His first big test comes around the 44 second mark when he's got to take down the helicopter. But I think if this is your first time seeing this game and you have only seen perhaps Virtual Cop up until this point, or even something like a Mad Dog McCree uh, on Games Master, those types of FMV games, it is quite startling to see in action because there's a lot of that ducking mechanic of to, to reload and this, that, and the other. And it's very very cool like it just looks so much more dynamic than virtual cop does the best thing about this challenge is watching it unfortunately there isn't a huge amount for us to get our teeth into when describing it because both of these two execute the challenge relatively flawlessly but i think kind of the problem that we've got here is that this is a very visual challenge which doesn't quite work on sort of this audio medium so there's not a huge amount for us to kind of save because they are just playing through the game perfectly as you would imagine they would do and playing through it very very quickly so tony gets through the first stage of this in 54.35 seconds which is about four seconds quicker than the previous 
number one spot. And he goes into the second stage, and again, Duke does it perfectly well. He absolutely executes it to a letter, to the T. He nails it, and he does it in 1 minute 43.7.70. That's his total time there. So you kind of, unless you're like really into your time crash, it's kind of hard to know exactly how good of a performance this is. However, when Mr. Triple X steps up, when Phil steps up, you then see the difference in how they play this game. Because visually, the most exciting thing about this challenge is Mr. X. Because Luke, Mr. X is all about fingering. He uses two hands. There's a lot of so for for those of you obviously who are listening to this, which is all of you, Ash and I just keep putting our hands up and doing the little offensive meter <laughs> move and thinking they can He uses two hands and he uses one hand to hold it steady and the other hand to flick the trigger. Yeah, it's so normally you would just have it in your, you know, the the grip in the palm of your hand and you would be using your index finger on that same hand to, mm-hmm. f- <laughs> to pull the trigger. But yeah, like what he is doing instead is just holding the grip in one hand. He slot his finger in the hole mm-hmm. <laughs> and is then just rapid fire fingering the trigger. Like our, our offensive meter is going. I might mean, put an explicit rating on this episode, <laughs> just like sort of all of the the actual like um the censoring of swears. We'll just put this out as an X-rated one. He is shooting faster than the frame rate can keep up with. It's the look on Tony's face that I love in this because this is obviously going to be the first time that Tony has seen him play the game. And there's this moment of just like, so that's how he does it. That's how he's quicker than me. He's got the good news about this is is Tony already knows going out of this what he needs to do in the long run to claim that top spot. But it will do him bugger all use here because, you know, he came first. So while Tony finished his first stage at 54.35 seconds, Mr. Triple X finishes his at 53.02 seconds. So he's already a full second ahead. And then he goes into the second stage. And even though Derek says he is slightly slower here, he's still ahead. He beats the challenge with 1 minute 41.31 seconds. He ends up being about two seconds quicker overall. It is a startlingly good performance by Mr. Triple X. Okay, guys, uh, let's, let's start with you there, Tony. What was, where did, where did you really lose the time there? It was um, the part where the, there was a covent belt with the boxes coming across uh-huh. in front of the screen, yes, yeah. Uh, let's go to you. Uh, why Triple X, actually? Uh, when I was, uh, when I was uh, a lot younger, there's uh, a, a spoof uh, double agent film on the telly, and they had this, this guy on there, and he called himself Agent Triple X, and it was just a, a silly way of getting my initials up, really. Did you, could you find what this was? Because this is a porn parody. Uh, movie that I would imagine would have been on some late night Channel 4 thing that he would have seen in a hotel room, or maybe he ordered it on the pay-per-view service. But I, I did try to find a spoof porn movie with a character called Agent Triple X. Could not find anything outside of there's a character called Agent Triple X in The Spy Who Loved Me, but I don't think that's who he's referencing. I mean, The Spy Who Loved Me is kind of a spoof of, of Bond films in some degree. In, yes, but he also says it's a he. And it's a she uh, in The Spy Who Loved Me. I, I couldn't find anything, but I was doing this research at the same time as I was doing research for our Christmas special. 
Therefore, my search history was wrecked. Even incognito tabs could not save me from that. Yeah, I was going to say, doing that and then the, the final feature of this has ruined my Google search history. And I was doing this at work. May. <laughs> this week, we're going to take a look at two of the most bulgingly anticipated games on the N64, beginning with Mario Kart 64. All the other characters are back. The uh, tracks, there are loads of them, 20 in all, including the four battle modes. It's got uh, pickups, bonuses. Four-player mode is the feature that everyone's been looking forward to the most. You get to race around in versus mode on all of the tracks again, like in the first Mario Kart. You can carry big long lines of bananas or string of shells around with you, then file them off when you feel like it. Unfortunately, the coins from the first game have gone, which used to pick up to make you go faster. The one-player mode occasionally gets boring and annoying with computer opponents that will catch you no matter what power-ups you use or how well you drive. If we'd never seen Super Nintendo Mario Kart, we'd think this was a very good driving game. But as it is, it's just not as good as the original Super Mario Kart. It's just not as good as we'd hoped. Well, I don't think they're behaving themselves, Ash, in this review. Because, I mean, talk about a review that has aged like f***ing milk. This is Rick and Ed reviewing Mario Kart 64. And essentially, their summation of Mario Kart 64 is, well, there's not much improvement on the SNES version. It's all right, I guess. Like one of the most applauded Mario Kart games we have talked about before. It's probably our favorite of the Mario Kart franchise. And here they had 80%. Yeah, it's fine, I guess. I was absolutely floored by this review. Just that that line of, it's not as good as the original Mario Kart, just not as good as we'd hoped. The hell? <laughs> I know. And the only thing I can pick up from this review that they think is different or they think is wrong is Ed says, ah, well, it hasn't got the coins from the SNES one anymore. <laughs> it's got four simultaneous players, you chad. <laughs> it hasn't got the coins. Oh, the single player's a bit boring and annoying. Imagine like the single player of Mario Kart. Like, yeah, sure, the multiplayer is more fun than the single player, but the single player's hardly boring, particularly if you're comparing it to the SNES version. It's, it's an incredible review. It gets 80%. Now, Luke, it gets 80% in Games Master the TV show. Okay. But does it get 80% in Games Master the magazine? Because one more time for Series 6, it's time to strike it, Lukey. So we're going to find out. I mean, I'm actually genuinely curious to find out about this one because I'd love to see... I reckon the magazine is going to be more praising of the game than the TV show is. That's that's my that's my big assumption up front. Let's see how this fares. So graphics. Lovely in some places, slightly bland in others, but overall a very welcome improvement. A welcome improvement. Um, I'm assuming they mean to the SNES one. Um uh, uh, it doesn't sound like it's going to be in the 90s then because they use, they use the word bland. So I'm going to say it's in the 80s. Whether it's at low, mid or high. Let's say mid 80s. I'm going to, I'll say 85. That's my benchmark, 85. 81. Oh, so it's low. Okay, cool. That's good to know. That's good to know. I can, can adjust uh, based on that. Sounds. Each character has plenty to say, and the music will sound familiar to cart veterans. Uh, I mean, I would go against that. I don't think each of the characters has plenty to say. I think Mario, Mario says, let's go, and that is more or less about it. A wahoo. Wow. 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 A wahoo, perhaps. Um, so 81 for graphics. 
I'll, I'll say it's around the same sort of mark, maybe 83. Bang on the button, 83. Okay, now we're in. Gameplay. It just feels so bleeding right. Intuitive, simple, yet awesomely entertaining. Superb. Now we're into the 90s. Let's go uh, slightly more than that. We're going 92. 93. Oh, I nearly said 93. I I was about to say that we'll go 10 more, but I thought 93 might be too high. Gutted. Lifespan. Get a machine, get a copy of this, grab some mates and joypads and play. Please. So that's got to be higher than 93. I'll say 95. 94. Oh, one out. Okay. So graphics 81, sound 83, gameplay 93, lifespan 94, final judgment. Everything that Nintendo could have done right, they have. One of the must-have games of 1997. Now, I think it's going to be in the 90s. There's part of me that thinks it's flat 90, but I think it's going to be slightly more than that. I think even with those low 80s, I think it's not going to drag it down below the 90 mark. So, I have now got a choice of whether I go 91, 2, or 3. So, I will split the difference and I will say 92. Oh, it's 93. (laughs) Gutted. I will say, normally, you can actually look at the graphic sound gameplay and lifespan and go, well, two in the 80s, two in the 90s, we might be a high 80s or mid to high 80s. This is one which genuinely breaks the mould, and I don't think they're wrong for it, because, yeah, the graphics on Mario Kart 64, they're, I think they're better than Mario Kart, but I get where they're saying from bland. There are some tracks which are just kind of there. Open expanses. No one plays Mario Kart for the sound. Some of the music is great, don't get me wrong. I mean, there's some iconic tracks in there. But mainly, it is the sound of hair dryers. But that gameplay and lifespan, that is what we come back to Mario Kart for. And so I can entirely see it as being valid of that being 93%. Finally, another game based on my early life as a teenager in Arbroath, Turok Dinosaur Hunter. It's got eight huge levels and there are warps on each level so that you can sort of like get from one point on the level to the other point because they are gigantic. Apart from the bow and arrow, the other weapons are like the grenade launcher, the quad rocket launcher, the particle accelerator, which you actually have to charge up for a few seconds before you can fire it off. But then, of course, there's the fusion cannon. Now, this is awesome. You've got raptors, you've got triceratops, you've got natives, you've got hunters, you've got some underwater creatures. The special effects are some of the best we've ever seen, including the rest of the Nintendo 64 games, some of the best graphics around. And overall, it's a really, really good game. And it's also nice to see uh, Turok Dinosaur Hunter, which has been featured quite a few times within Series 6. We had it as a news item, then we've had it as a feature, now we've got it as a review here to round things off. And it is them again talking about how great all the guns are. As far as console first-person shooters go, Turok is a definite high-water mark. I mean, before that, we've got things like Dark Forces and Doom on the PlayStation, uh, Doom on the Saturn, don't forget, on the Jaguar as well. And this is a real... I mean, it's a big, big open levels as well. It's not narrowly contained corridors or spaceships. There's kind of sky and there's fog. There's, there's lots of fog, but eight huge levels, warp zones between them, bow and arrow, and it was the first game I can remember giving me a proper bow and arrow type interaction from a controller. And nowadays, playing games, I love like a bow and arrow type mechanic. I love playing Far Cry, sneaking around, being kind of like stealth ninja bow and arrow guy. And yeah, we got villains, surprisingly not just dinosaurs. The graphics get very highly spoken of. It is, I'd say, probably one of the best looking early N64 games certainly pushes that console pretty damn hard and overall a really good game 
do I agree that it gets rated higher than Mario Kart 64? Uh, it's yeah, like it gets 90% and I think that's a completely fair score for it. I just think that Mario Kart was should have been higher. Like 93 from the magazine I think is pretty much on the money. Uh, I do like in this review though that Ed talks about how the uh, the, the graphics are the best we've ever seen. You might even say. It's got the best graphics you've ever seen in your life. I mean, it's no tennis game, but what can you do? What can you do? Now, Luke, you came so close with Mario Kart 64. Yeah. But in front of me is a review of Turok Dinosaur Hunter. Okay, we'll, we'll double dip. We'll double dip. We'll go for redemption. So 90% overall is the score on the board from Games Master, the TV show. Will Overton is the reviewer for this game. And on graphics says... Smooth and fluid, with a kind of sumptuous effects that make you go, ah. Definitely in the 90s. Uh, I don't think high or... So I'm going to say 91. 93. Okay, that's higher than I thought. Sounds. Not so much banging tunes as banging toms. Nice sound effects for weapon noises. Hmm. I'll, I'll stick. 91? 87. Ooh, okay. Wow, I'm way off with this one. Gameplay. It can get pretty damn tough, but mastery of those controls bring huge rewards. God, I feel like I want to stick again at 91. Because I'm, I'm, I feel like Will's all over the show. I'll say 91 again. Bang on the bus, 91. There we go. Lifespan. Only eight levels, but they're big and there's plenty of secrets to discover in there. Hmm. Do you know what? For, for a record fourth time, I'll stick with 91. 90. Oh, okay. Fair enough. Right, so we that was 93, 87, 91 and 90, correct? Correct. Final judgment, the N64's first Doomer, and it's more than all right. Even Doom 64 will have its work cut out to top Turok's violent delights. I actually wonder whether it will be exactly the same as the mag- uh, exactly the same as the TV show. So I'm going to say 90%. You should have gone for a fifth time lucky, mate. Oh, it was 91. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, maybe Series 7 will do you better. Maybe. That's it for part one of this final show where we are trying to behave. In the second part, I'm going to touch something wet and slippery. It's a fish, Michael Fish. On as a special guest after this break. <laughs> Brass eye. Three sides of the coin on sex. It's quite acceptable for Peter Sissons to receive oral sex during disaster reports on the nine o'clock news. Two men marching like that present a much smaller target than two men marching like that. This guy's got AIDS and he's about to beat me in an arm wrestling. Oh, well done. Let's talk about your club. What's it called? Stringfellas. Okay, but essentially we're talking about your club. It's called Stringfellas. Brass eye, Wednesday, 9.30 on 4. Pestle has a special stain release system to get clothes brilliantly clean. Whether you like it or not. Pestle's new stain release system is nothing short of brilliant. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. 
Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. These sad fruits saw the light when Creamy Salt made them into a creamy custody fruitini. Cherry was a bored pineapple oh, until real fruit juice changed him into a juicy fruitini. Oh, let me hear you say, yeah! And Derek was an innocent peach, ain't that the truth, until real juice jelly made him into a jelly fruitini. Del Monte fruitini, it's fruititious. Wanna be blunt, but you're not funny. No, your mate is. Your mate is, but you're not. And and deck and zip. Tuesday, six twenty-five on four. Welcome back. I hope those various commercials slipped seductively inside your mind. Prepare to spread your attention span once more as we go into our final celebrity challenge. All that offence meter is getting higher and higher. It was just above rude until Dom mentioned touching something wet and slippery. Yes, and it's creaking even further now with slipped seductively and spread your attentions. They are going all out on this episode. This is, it's it, Bear in mind, it's six well, at this point. It's like... 13 minutes past six. Quarter past six, maybe. It's not even tea time. They are going balls to the wall. Indeed, they are. And um, perhaps our celebrity will go balls to the wall as well in our celebrity challenge. What are we playing, Games Master? For my very last challenge of this series, I've chosen a game which I hope will send us out on a high note. Prop cycle. Soaring around the heaven on the bicycle. My final contestant's task involves popping balloons worth varying amounts of points. Their challenge is to amass 2,000 points before the clock runs out. I feel the time counting away on this, the last show, and I only hope my challenger will provide us with a fitting finale at this most sad moment. I bloody love Prop Cycle. This is a fun game. Hog have got it. It's a fun have game. Have they really? I, yeah. I, oh, when we come to UTP Live, then I will definitely be going to check that out. I mean, they did have it the last time I went around there properly. I hopefully it still survived and still there because oh god, it was so much fun. It is such a fun game. I've never played it before, and this challenge here didn't kind of make me feel very nostalgic for this period of arcade games, which was you know what wacky peripheral can we put onto this? You know, we've seen them a lot through series five and series six. You're on skis, you're on the snowboard, you're on this, you're on that. And here we have got, you are on literally a bike 
and you have got to pedal your way through this game. So I would be very curious to play this now, although I am not exactly uh, a fit and healthy man. I would at least be able to, to at least be able to say I have played this game. I mean, this game did kind of come out of a couple of Namco employees and engineers just fartassing around and coming up with a technical demo where a, a, where the player rode a human-powered plane and shot down enemies. And it was a rough enough demo that they weren't even using 3D graphics. It was done using 2D sprites and stuff like that. And there was enough to it and enough to that idea of flight that made them go, maybe this has got the makings of a full game, particularly if we mix in some inspiration from Studio Ghibli, things like uh, Kiki's Delivery Service, stuff like that. And this game was designed to be exclusive to arcades, to just be an arcade game. Uh, Shigeki Toyama, the guy behind it, just wanted the game to be interactive and a reason to go to an arcade, not something you could recreate on a home console definitely definitely achieved that because it feels very much like a, a passion project by the 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 guy like i was reading some interviews uh with uh, toyama-san and he was talking very like openly like he's not really he doesn't think of himself as a game developer on this as more of like a movie director for this because it has got an a, a very involved plot through the game and you don't really get to find out everything about the game unless you make it to the end and complete it and if you are doing this as a arcade exclusive thing that sort of like i mean he he has said in interviews that he regrets some of the choices that he made in making this and making it so hard you never really get to see the full story of this um the interview that he did in i think from 2011 with shumplations uh, where he said for my part i intended to take on the role of movie director for the development so i thought up the story the setting and everything myself drew the art for the villagers too and designed it so that only if you made it to the final stage would you understand the story i regret doing that now the developers became too good at the game during the development you see and were good enough that they could beat it while holding a child in one arm it had a warm comfy world so even little girls played prop cycle a lot but now i do think i made it too difficult I had wanted to port it to console too, but management said no. Interesting that there's two different attitudes there of wanting to create something unique to the arcade and wanting to port it to the home. Maybe he changed his mind post-release. Yeah, I wonder if because of not everyone gets to see the story that you have created. If you see yourself as this sort of movie director, this visionary storyteller, if no one's really getting to see that story play out, then yeah, you probably will want it to put it onto a home market. I or It's a case of... Like, you know, Toyama-san wanted to put it out on the home market, but Namco were like, no, this should just be a uh, arcade exclusive thing. I wonder, I mean, it could have worked with the DualShock era controller where you could have had maybe the pedaling done by the L2 and R2 triggers and the steering done via the analog sticks. I mean, you would have still ended up with cramping hands, but it would have been fun. I find it funny he talks about the story there because have you read the story for this game? I actually didn't. It takes place in a world destroyed by a war 200 years prior. A hyperspace magnetic weapon called the Tesla bomb was used, destroying all civilization and completely changing the world's terrain. The few who survived have abandoned high technology and live a simple but elegant life. The most advanced tech used is the steam engine, powered by natural resources called fuel stones. I think that's coal. With the world's terrain made up of steep canyons caused by the destruction from the previous war, personal flight technology is necessary for people to live without destroying nature. However, flight technology has undergone a high degree of evolution with the new civilization's collection of knowledge, and now it's possible to fly freely with only human power. The machine is called the Laparopter. The Laparopter. So it's a, it's, but it's a post-apocalyptic, this is like Fallout Wii Fit. <laughs> <laughs> 
does it like especially when he's talking about you know he, he called it a warm comfy world it's a post-apocalyptic world mate but who is our hero of the post-apocalyptic wasteland luke and so for our final celebrity challenge of the series we have a guest of meteorological proportions please welcome the bloke who puts the man in weatherman mr michael fish welcome to the show michael thank you very much now michael did you ever did you always want to be a weatherman even when you were younger a meteorologist that's different i always wanted to work with the weather in the met office but more often just sort of had thoughts of doing research or something like that never in my wildest dreams did i ever think i'd end up on television we're very big on fashion on this show now you've got um are you yeah well i was hoping you'd give me an assessment of my outfit then well it's cheap in a way <laughs> Not, not cheap and nasty, but right. cheap because you don't have to wear ties. And oh, I right. spend a fortune buying ties oh. all the time, you see. That's so you get away with it. That's because I spent so much money on the lining. <laughs> there. Like, oh, see that on there? A nice little bit of gold there. Snap. Oh, um, well, that's kind of more of a green note, uh, Michael. Oh, but I, I went all the way to Oslo to buy this jacket. Okay. It is none other than British weatherman legend who does not belong on Games Master with all of the guests that we've had this series. Michael Fish is on the show. This is a weird final guess. It's so weird. Like it's I feel like it's the weirdest choice they could have made. I'm sure they thought that this was fucking hilarious that they got Michael Fish on to do this show. And in a way they are right. But boy is it a weird way to round off series 6. I will say though, he is a good sport for this. Yeah. He knows. He is one of those guests. We used to get these sort of back in Series 2, 3 era of Games Master. Actually, in some ways, Series 4 as well. Celebrities that are going on there knowing that they're shit at games. And they know that they're not going to do good. They know they're not going to do well. So they just go on there to have a bit of a laugh and a bit of a good time. It's just bizarre. He's not even here to promote something. It's not even like he's Sanjay from EastEnders on there to promote the show. He's just on here as British weatherman Michael Fish. And there is there are people today that will never have seen Michael Fish present the weather. They will not necessarily know who he is. But people may know him for music more because, one, Michael Fish had a song dedicated to himself in 1985, a song called I Wish I Wish He Was Like Michael Fish by a punk group called Rachel and Nicky. But the one that sticks in my head is by Tribe of Tops called John Ketley is a Weatherman, the lyrics for which are... He's a weatherman. And the music video would always include a clip of the fish. And that song still rears its head every now and then, despite Michael Fish having been off air for a good amount of time. Yeah, I, th I think like, because his career ended, well rather career ended, he retired in 2016, but he'd been going since the early 60s. Uh, on TV, an incredible run that he had. Uh, and, you know, he's got various different MBEs and all this sort of stuff. He is a icon of British TV throughout the 80s and 90s. Perhaps, unfortunately, like most remembered for the, the great storm of 87, because he said on a broadcast that um, well, here's the quote. Good afternoon to you. Earlier on today, apparently a woman rang the BBC and said she heard that there was a hurricane on the way. Well, if you're watching, don't worry, there isn't. The, the worst storm to ever hit the southeast of England then hit the southeast of England. Causing record damage and multiple, multiple deaths. 
Now, he went down like, like, you know, he was headline news over this perceived gaffe. And there's a couple of things that aren't actually quite right. There was actually no caller. It was just something that came up as a result of a bit of banter with someone else in the studio whose mother was going to Florida and said she'd heard there was a storm coming. So he thought it would be a fun little opening to start the forecast with. And so led to the earlier today, a woman rang the BBC. No woman rang the BBC. It was bants. It was just a little bit of light flavour. Some He used to do it all the time, just give that little bit of colour. It's one of the reasons he's so fondly remembered. But even the fact that the storm was due to hit, the level of destruction that it caused was unprecedented. He did actually go on to warn later in the broadcast of high winds for the UK, but the predictions that he had to base those warnings on weren't accurate to what actually hit the coast of England. And it it says so much. 2012, the Olympic opening ceremonies for London 2012, probably one of my favourite bits of just kind of television of the past 20 years. I remember making so many jokes about how crap that opening ceremony was going to be because I just thought we were so ill-equipped to do the Olympics. And even now I will go back and watch the Blu-ray of that Olympics because that opening ceremony, so much of the stuff around it, it was beautiful. But in that, the clip of him predicting the or the clip of him dismissing the hurricane notion is still played it's a, a weird thing to include in the uh the, the 2012 olympic opening ceremonies because it essentially just says look how cack our weathermen are and you know it, it but it has become uh, a thing there is now a phrase to describe this the michael fish effect or a michael fish moment it is the the legacy that he has given himself uh, and has given the industry as well uh, it's it's quite remarkable. I mean, it's amazing that it does not get brought up here. I honestly would have thought that is what Dominic Diamond would have had him on Games Master to talk about, particularly because as this is airing, it's the 10-year anniversary of him doing it. Part of me wonders, did Dom give him the heads up and he was just like, please don't. Please don't do that. Please don't bring please that don't. up. Or maybe Dom himself thought different of it because, yes, it was a gaffe, but also like nearly 20 people died. Yeah. Maybe, well, that's again, maybe that was the thing. That's why I thought it was weird. It was in the Olympic ceremony as well. Yeah. I, I mean, that. but then that's that's like, what, 20 years later. It's amazing what you can feel you can do 20 years later. But Dom actually does a pretty, pretty good interview with him. And I think it's actually quite a nice little chance for Dom to do a chat that doesn't just revolve around innuendo, especially given the meter that is omnipresent throughout this show. And he asked him if he always wanted to be a weatherman. And he's like, well, no, but I always wanted to be a meteorologist in the Met Office, but just research. Didn't think I'd end up on TV. They have a bit of back and forth about, about fashion. Michael gives his assessment of Dom's outfit. Michael says it's cheap. <laughs> and well, it's, he says it's cheap because he's not wearing a tie, which, you know, you could argue is a fair point to make. Because if you are wearing a suit, some would argue that you should also wear a tie with that. I I swing both ways on that one. I, if you don't want to wear a tie, my uh, my brother-in-law, um, when we go to weddings, doesn't wear a tie. He will just wear a waistcoat and a shirt that has got like the top couple of buttons open. And I think he looks quite quite dapper while doing so. I myself, however, will always put a tie on because I don't think I can. I can't pull it off. 
this sort of the open I, I couldn't pull off dom's look i would have to have a tie going with it i can go with the tie but i will usually take the tie off after a while because like i i need the ventilation i can't <laughs> i can't do it otherwise but he does he does kind of backpedal and yeah he does go no not cheap and nasty but cheap in that you know i have to buy a lot of ties it gets expensive and then there's a bit of bragging about sort of like the lining of their jacket. It's like, well, actually, I got mine from Oslo, so I think mine probably is better than yours. So you bought a jacket off a guy in the classified ads. Good for you, whoever <laughs> yeah. this Oslo is selling his secondhand jackets in the local newspaper. And providing my own personal warm front is visit Kirk Ewing. Kirk, what's your favourite kind of weather? My favourite weather is smur, Mr Diamond. What's what smur, Mr Diamond? Smur is light Scottish rain. Is it? Yes. It's never fallen on me. It's a beautiful thing. Well, we're in the presence of a television presenting legend tonight, and we've also got Michael Fish as well as me. So what advice could you give him? Well, there's a few things to remember about this game, and basically pedalling, but not to pedal too fast, right? Aim for the balloons, uh, if, you, if you miss a balloon, don't stop uh, and try and turn around and go back for it. Just keep going because the, the balloons at the end are worth more points. Smur, light Scottish rain. You'd have thought that Smur stood for something. And I kept, because like I wrote down Smur and then wrote down light Scottish rain. And then I paused the episode and I just stared at the words I'd written down with Kirk's delivery of it ringing in my head being like, man, I really don't think I follow here. And amazingly, it's accurate. Smur is indeed a Scottish term to describe a fine drifting rain or drizzle, traditionally spelled S-M-I-R-R, and apparently it may be related to a Dutch word for mist, which is smor, S-M-O-O-R. And it was kind of, I guess, like solidified and put into the written word by uh, poet George Campbell, who said, who who immortalised it in a poem called The Smoky Smur O'Rain, which was published in 1948. So this wasn't just Kirk having bants. This was actual culture. This is culture. This is Kirk showing off his Scottish knowledge and displaying to the world how cool it is to be Scottish. But he's also got very good advice here, which Michael Fish massively ignores, which is don't pedal too fast because you will struggle to then aim at the balloons. Plus, if you miss one, don't go back for it because the ones at the end are worth more points. He's got to get 2,000 points uh, in the time that he has here. So if he does miss them, just carry on as normal. So we get into the challenge itself, and Michael Fish does miss loads of them. He gets one of them, then he misses another, then misses another, then misses another. And he misses so many that Dominic Diamond says, Okay, he's quite literally annoying, ev uh, ignoring everything. Not annoying, he might be annoying everything, but I wouldn't like to say that about now. I think I know at least part of the problem here, and it's a mistake I first made when playing this game. If you pedal too fast, you will do badly. It's all about finding the tempo and variance in tempo you need to steer accurately. If you just go hell for leather and pedal as fast as you are capable, you will travel in straight lines, but you will turn too sharply, you, you'll overcompensate too easily. It is a surprisingly subtle game in that regard. It's a lot like the pilot wings challenge we had last week, where if you are going too fast, your banks to turn around are going to be too wide and too fast. And you know that's, that was Kirk's advice. Don't go too fast when you're playing this game, because you will struggle then to aim at the balloons. To Michael Fish's credit, he does get halfway to the score that he needs. He's got 1,100 points at one point, nearly, 11, nearly 1,200 points at one point. The problem is, he's only got 20 seconds left. 
So he needs to pull out something really big in these final 20 seconds uh, so to get the points. And what he does do is then go for the time extension balloons. The problem he has there is that he gets the time extension balloons, but then pops no other balloons into the time he's extended it by. So he gets to 1,250 points, but he's only got 10 seconds to go. Then he bumps himself up with another time extension. And then he bumps another time extension, but still gets no points. He ends up with 1,350 points to end in dismal, fishy failure. 650 points short of the target. Commiserations there, Mr. Fish. It's exhausting. How, how did you find it? Well, I was a bit guilty, you see, because they look to me like Met Office radio song balloons. They're balloons we send out with instruments, and they're so important and so valuable that I was pretty reluctant to shoot any down, really. That is one of the finest excuses. Really? Uh, we've heard <laughs> 500 points there. It wasn't bad at all. It was a, was a fine performance. No, it's the first time I've ever played any of that, those sort of games, so, uh, well, it's the first time for everything. Not bad. In the post-match, Michael says he found it exhausting, but I love his excuse for missing all those balloons, <laughs> which is... They reminded him of the weather balloons they send up, which are terribly important. And Dominic quite rightly says that is one of the best excuses they've ever had. Another great excuse is this is the first video game he's ever played. I mean, to be fair, he says it's the first time he's ever played one of these sorts of games. And in fairness, when it comes to games that involve you pretending to fly a plane using the power of a bicycle, there aren't many other opportunities. No. To, to play that sort of game, you do have to be down the bowling alley or the Sega World or the Namco Wonder Park on the reg. I really enjoyed uh, Michael Fish on this challenge. Uh, I, I sort of like, he was a bizarre final celebrity for the series. You know, if this was going to be the final episode ever in particular. But like, I think just, you know, his performance here, talking about like the, him being very uh, affectionate towards the Met Office balloons. And actually, you know, Games Master's final you know, proclamation yesterday in the challenge where he's like, you know, I feel time slipping away on these final challenges. I did sort of got to get a bit sort of melancholy about this being, quote unquote, the last episode of Games Master. It's weird knowing we have 10 episodes to go, but also feeling, I mean, you can feel this is the end. For me, it's like Babylon 5 when they found they, only, they had to wrap things up in series four. So JMS made everything finish in series four. And then we got series five and suddenly Tracy Scoggins was the captain. I mean, Patrick Moore wasn't replaced with Tracy Scoggins, nor was Dominic Diamond. Could have been. That would have been a very, very broad departure. But this does feel like a natural conclusion to this era of Games Master. And don't get me wrong, I actually love the way Series 7 deliberately spends the entire series building towards its conclusion. But this also feels very natural. And I think the gag ending... Oh, the, the gag ending of this series is it perfectly played, but that final challenge is that final challenge is over, a fitting end, and one final feature of the series. Final time, final. Dom gets paid for this. <laughs> we had a number of options for this week's feature. We could have covered binary code programmers in Leicester, machine operators in Swindon, or glamour models in Tampa Bay, Florida. I think we made the right decision. Here's your tea, Dominic. Thanks, love. Yes, Gillian Bonner is quite literally a glamour model who takes a good photo. But she also happens to be one of the few women to own her own software company, as well as star in its first title, Rihanna Rouge. And what a feature we have here. We, I said earlier in this episode that like this feels like a, it could have been a cast-off from the Gore special. And I just I want to remind everyone again, that this feature went out at about 27 minutes past six on a Tuesday. This is 
it's it's very sexy at times like they show a lot of like the the sexy nature of, of rihanna rouge and do a lot of talking about the skimpy outfits that she wears and you know the the, the glamour model lifestyle i mean for all they show there's a lot they don't show because of the time because this game it looks like a bit naughty like a leisure suit larry in this video package uh, package Right. Do you see how we classed ourselves up when Michael Fish was on screen? But now that he's gone, we're back to our old ways. Yeah, now now he's gone. We've sunk back to the depths, the low pressure. <laughs> this game was a full-on adults-only rating. It's one of the reasons it didn't do so well because adults-only is a, like particularly in the like mid to late nineties, right up until present day, it was a death knell for a game. You wouldn't get promotion. You wouldn't get decent advertising. It's getting the X rating uh, from the MPAA for your movie because then you can't put it on TV to, to promote it and this and the other. And like, because it's got sex scenes in it as well, it wasn't sold in Walmart. It wasn't sold in CompUSA. So it was always going to struggle to find its audience because it's not going to be sold to a mass market thing. Apparently it did sell around about 100,000 copies, uh, but reviews for it were not great. No, and it's a shame purely because, I mean, Gillian Bonner, the star of the game and also the founder of the company, Black Dragon Productions, she did start as a model, as a glamour model, and she then moved into IT. And this company she set up to make this game, to move into software, everything that they did with this game was proprietary and new. The game engine used to manipulate the digitized data was all new. And whilst, yes, it wasn't terribly well received, yes, the acting was pretty abysmal, there was whole new realms of technology they created that was only used here. It was a one and done. There was no chances for refinement, as best I can tell, unless someone did very quietly buy the technology off them. So, Gillian, what's a lovely lady like you doing in a horrible industry like this? Well, I uh, was interested in high school and then after modeling in New York for a number of years, I retired from that and opened a mail order hardware, computer hardware company. Was it easy to get it started off? Well, it took money, and I, I rounded up the most knowledgeable people I could to, to help me. And, of course, I learned a lot by doing that, but I hated that part of the industry. So mm-hmm. it just wasn't creative enough. I think Bonner's a very interesting character in all of this as well, because, you know, like Dom has gone out to talk to her because she is a glamour model that is making uh, a video game, and then they can go and look at her pants and this and the other. But actually, like, she is a IT geek. She was fascinated with computers and how computers were made from a very young age. And she then had a choice to either go to the Southern Methodist University for a degree in computer engineering or go to New York and be a model. And the smartest thing she could do was do both because she did go and be a model and she made herself a lot of money by doing Playboy. And off the back of that was then able to go into her actual passion, which is computer engineering. She told the LA Times in 99, I did it for exposure. (laughs) Bonner says, laughing, referring less to her appearance in the magazine and more to her marketing strategy. Quote, I sent them a Polaroid and when they said, okay, you want to do it, I said I would only do it if they mentioned my company, my web address and my product name in the first paragraph and they did. Overnight, I knew all the big players in the software industry. And then she says, largely through contacts that she made via Playboy, Rihanna Rouge was released in 1997 by IDOS Interactive, the video game producer and distributor known for Tomb Raider. Because her timeline is 
not what you might assume, because 1984, she graduated high school, moved on to study animation at the School of Art and Design in Ringling in Florida. And then, then she started work as an actual fashion model, did stuff for Elite, appeared in campaigns for guest jeans, cover girl cosmetics, so on and so forth. Black Dragon Productions was founded in 1992, and she didn't appear in Playboy, as she mentioned, until 1996. So she was a very, very canny business person. Yeah, she's a smart cookie. Uh, and I, I really, really like you know the, the, the story that she has had. I, in that LA Times article, I just wanted to read this little paragraph here because it references quite a few things that we have had throughout this run. This is what the article says. At the time Rihanna Rouge was released, bear in mind this was written in 99. At the time Rihanna Rouge was released, the only successful girl-oriented gaming title was Barbie Fashion Designer, which had sold 1.75 million copies since it first went on the market in 96. Despite efforts by Purple Moon, the pioneering girl-oriented game company that recently was swallowed by Mattel and Girls Game Inc., Texas-based developer of online entertainment for girls, Barbie Fashion Designer is still the most successful title for female players. And one of the things I love about her as well is that in this feature she's smart she's savvy and she gets it she doesn't just put up with dom she plays along she works with him and as a result it is definitely a feature that could have been in the gore special but also at no point does it feel mean-spirited despite starting with the whole here's your cup of tea love kind of thing at the beginning and we see behind the scenes, we see that this is not just some kind of cheap, like, you know, rhythm mag on a CD-ROM. This was being produced as a proper interactive movie and game, even though, yeah, it bombed. Like, I saw some of the review scores that it got, and I'm just like, ooh, German magazine gave it 19%. So I uh, found that, because uh, uh, it was linked to on the Wikipedia page, and I had it translated by a friend of mine. So I can read you that review if you'd like. Oh, please do. Inspired by the successes of Lara Croft, female heroes started to inhabit the software market, whose chest size divided by their IQ does result in a positive polynomial number. With Rihanna Rouge, we now have the first specimen, where such a calculation should allow a division by zero. Anyhow, actor Gillian Bonner excellently represents the state of mind in this pathetic effort with her qualities. The standard for the brain spasm that consists out of acrylic wigs, latex clothing, bad actors, delented bad animation and risky wannabe humour could not even be undercut by a co-production of Russ Meyer and Ed Wood. Not even if Verona Feldbush and House Meister would be cast in the main roles. And the only positive they can say about the game, the negative they say about the game is it's a completely lousy game, but they do have one positive, which is an excellent wig collection. It's important to have a good wig collection. I'm amazed Dom didn't get more tips on that wig collection while he was there. As a bit of um, uh, context as well, uh, my friend provided to me, Verona Feldbush, uh, they write, was a perfect example of a woman with zero talent getting all of these on-screen jobs because of the person she was dating at the time. And Hans Meister is an elderly guy who was the face of sensational journalism at the time and was often put in situations that did not suit his abilities. Ah, context appreciated. Context there. Okay, so we've come into Gillian's private study here where I'm going to take a look at her pants. (laughs) Basically. Uh, so, Jenny, show us some of the costumes then that, that you wore in the game. Okay, what little costumes we have here. Yeah. This is um, was worn in Fun World, which is pretty cool. That's nice, for Alice in Wonderland. Yeah. This was Tree World, and um, it was a really great world to work on. Uh huh. All um, tribal and 
feather. There are some members of parliament in Britain that wear stuff like that regularly. Just, yeah. They do, trust me. Uh, I believe you. Yeah. <laughs> this is the uh, final, when she becomes a superhero, she uh -huh. wears this outfit. With all the spikes and chains and everything. That's Great. cool. Yeah. It's just a pity that none of them come in my size. We also see behind the scenes in Gillian's wardrobe. Dom points out some of the outfits resemble those regularly worn by members of parliament. <laughs> and she doesn't believe him. She should. And we then see the final superhero outfit with spikes and chains. And Dom is very sad that none of these outfits come in his size. Which brings us to the final feature moment. This would have been the final feature of Games Master. This is the way that Dominic Diamond wanted this show to go out on a high, if you will. Well, uh, that's it. And Gillian's very kindly offered to uh, give me a lift to the airport. Looks like it won't start. Oh, no. Guess you'll have to stay. And he looks at the camera, gives a big thumbs up and a big old wink to be like, hey, the lads. It's all done in very good nature. And also that motorbike is ludicrous. <laughs> I love it. It's, I'm just looking at that motorbike and I'm just like, I love that you own this motorbike. That, that is such an absolutely ridiculous looking motorbike. And I am totally here for it. I also just love that series six uh, begins with Dominic being revived by uh, women kissing him and giving him, him giving a big thumbs up and a wink to the camera. And it was going to end with him giving the camera a big old wink and a thumbs up because he's going to do a sex now. Okay, that's it. The end of the show, the end of the series. And if we take a quick look at the fence-ometer, I am amazed. I mean, it appears to have swelled to erect proportions. Uh, we we are uh, quite literally in a lot of trouble. I'm hearing the Channel 4 No Fun Police are on their way down and the future looks grim. So, I'm sorry, I mean, I feel kind of quite responsible for all this. So I guess I'd just like to say, well, apologise really to, to all the old people who feel I've, I've made terrible jokes at their expense. To all the parents who felt to be corrupted or tainted their children in any way, I personally would just like to say, I don't give up. But we're back in the studio. That's the end of it, the end of the show, the end of the series. And oh dear, the offensometer has swelled to erect proportions. It taps out. The no fun police are coming down. And Dom is sorry. He feels responsible for all this. He'd like to apologise to all the old people who he's made jokes about, to all the parents who feel he's corrupted their children, and he doesn't give up. So that was the final episode of Series 6. <laughs> it's, really, it's this whole thing like, I'm very sorry for what I did. I apologise. Not really. I don't give a fuck. And it just cuts like, <laughs> they literally end Games Master on an F-bomb. At half past six. <laughs> yeah. And another big F-bomb is them going, well, the show's finished, and so is the website, channel4.com. <laughs> The concept that you would just kill the website immediately as soon as the show was off air. But then again, web resources were much more different back then. It is an incredible end to the show. You know, Dom talked about this when we did the Q&A with him uh, recently at the Loading Bar, where he was like, you know, we killed our own show. We cancelled our own show live, not, you know, not live on air, but on air. Like they told everyone, this is it, we're done. We had that interview with Dominic Diamond in the magazine where he said that this was it for him. He's not going to be, even if there is a Series 7, he's not going to do it. In his mind, this show is done at this point. 
And what better way to go out on than <laughs> ending with an F-bomb and doing the most smut-laden episode you could have done of Games Master at this point. It is kind of great. It's I'm glad I'm glad we do get a seventh series, obviously, because we get to do more shows than this, and there are lots of elements of Series 7 that I do really like. But I actually think the final episode of Series 7 is a more beautiful way to end off Games Master. This is a funnier way to end off Games Master. Like, if this had been it, this would have been the funniest way possible they could have done it. But I actually prefer sort of the, the sweeter meta way we end Series 7 to, to kind of wrap up the show. Yeah, Series 7 is very much... This is a... We're finishing up. Maybe we'll come back. We, we won't. We're done. But it leaves a kind of... There's a door half left open, whereas Series 7, they're like, no, we're definitely making sure that we're not coming back from this one. We are counting down to this one. But I love... The, I love I love how this ends, and to go into, I guess, the wrap-up and our final thoughts on this final Bucky O'Hara's episode of Games Master for the time being, the only thing I would change about this last episode is the celebrity challenge. And it's not because I think it's a bad celebrity challenge, but just because it feels a bit odd. Yeah, it's it's a weird one to choose. I get why they did it, or at least I, I, I presume why they did it is because they thought it was very funny to have Michael Fish be the the, the final uh, celebrity. But I think because they were trying to go with this whole offensometer thing, it almost felt like they needed a bit more of an edgier choice to go out on. Zoe Ball. Yeah, like the Zoe, absolutely, the Zoe Ball challenge. I guess they just probably wouldn't have known ahead of time that she was going to be as Zoe Ball as she was on the show itself. So, like, Michael Fish feels like a nice juxtaposition to what they're doing throughout the episode. But... Did, did someone tell them that Michael Fish worked blue? <laughs> I wonder if Tom mate, you get a couple of sherries inside and before he goes in front of the camera, he puts Bernard Manning to shame. But what we get is just a very mild-mannered celebrity challenge. It's a fun celebrity challenge. He's very bad at the game, but he seems to be having a nice time at it. At least he's better than Sanjay was. But it's, yeah, it's, it's a weird, weird little conclusion. As an episode overall, though, like I really liked the the first challenge because I liked the narrative that it presents. I have massive issues with that Mario Kart 64 uh, review, as I'd imagine most people would do. But, you know, towards the style of the time, the, the TV show always did seem to be out of step with everybody else within the game's media. And I think that final feature is the most middle finger, please don't recommission this show, or you're not recommissioning this show, so we're just going to put this porn game feature out at half past six on a tuesday to you know 11 year old luke who is watching this at home it is it's a remarkable middle finger of an episode and i love it for its 90s anarchic approach it was fun and like the best games master was in no way mean-spirited yeah all the jokes were at their own expense yeah and people played along even michael fish who was mostly bemused by all of it yeah exactly like he was great i i think the the two challenges that we had earlier in the show were very very good and as i said i really like the narrative around that challenge and that final feature i thought that jillian bonner herself was very very nice like you know she was there to be a uh, a glamour model that dom was paid to go and flirt with but she also gets across her actual credentials in the same way that she did when she featured in Playboy. So I have got a lot of love for this episode. I'm very curious uh, of what your score for this might be, because while I do love the episode, I don't think it's, it doesn't feel like an all-time classic episode, but it is a very, very good episode. I think I'm looking at it on the whole. Uh -huh. <laughs> 
our own internal meter's still going. Um, and I think I'm going to judge it based on just how much this episode actually gave us. If you look at the news and that about the N64 launch, how excited I would be and how it, that excitement came back to me that 48 hours and the N64 is here. I can finally slip and slide down that iceway and not come off at the first corner. Um, and and the reviews and being slightly baffled by the, the, the meh reaction to Mario 64. Seeing something like Michael Fish riding a bicycle in front of a computer of a game which I would not get to play for many, many more years, but which just looks so absolutely wonderfully bizarre. The time crisis challenge. So I bet you, after seeing that challenge, I probably tried the two-hand technique down the local arcade. It's a good way to... It's a smart way to play the game. It's a smart way to play the game. Yeah. I, I, and the thing is, is I'm now, next time I'm in Hog, I'm going to try it again, because why wouldn't I? And then we get to that final feature. It's a bit naughty, it's a bit cheesy, but also it is very interesting. That's the one aspect of the show, that's the one aspect of this episode that I like more now than I would have back then. Because now I find it fascinating to look back at this woman's career and look at how she started, where she started from, how she used certain aspects of her fame, how she saw a way to use her physical attributes to propel her actual interests and passions, how game she was to have a bit of a laugh about this. And I, I love the fact that we got to talk about this game that is utterly shit, but the story behind it, I wish there was actually more. Yeah. I wish we could find more about this game and how it went through production and more of the discussions that must have happened, particularly given it was an adults-only game. So it's not an all-time classic, but I do think that the tip of it is just peaking over the 90% mark for me. That's what I was trying to work out, is whether or not I was going to give this a, uh, a DeLorean or a slightly higher than DeLorean, go for 89 or whether it does get pushed into the 90s. I'm, I mean, I, my gut instinct is telling me this is a flat 90, because I do think this is an excellent episode of the show, and I actually love the attitude that it has towards it being the final episode of Games Master. And I think in that regard, I have to put it into the 90s. So I'm going to give it a flat 90%. Well, I hope this isn't too bitter for you. I'm going to give it 91. <laughs> But that is going to do it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. You all rule. You can find us on social media at underconsolepod on Twitter at under.console on Instagram. And you can send us an email to feedback at underconsultation.com. And if you want to interact with us in real time, interact with other listeners, other fans of retro gaming and pop culture, you can do so over on our Discord where the ranks are swelling and it's a lot of good people, a lot of good times. And if you want to support this podcast monetarily, you can do so over at patreon.com forward slash underconsolepod, where you'll get access to UCP Extra, this show format, but about other TV shows from the 80s, 90s, and 2000s, and our monthly community show, Under Console Nation. At the £5 level, you will get next week's episode one week early and ad-free. And at the £10 level, you'll get a little bit extra. Ash, what is that? At the £10 level, they get the golden joystick waggler's mug stuffed with stickers, badges, retro trading cards, sweeties, all sorts of goodies, which I gaffer tape to a football and kick directly through your greenhouse. If you don't have a greenhouse, I build a greenhouse, then break the glass with the football. 
that's just the way it works. I don't make the Vorks. So next week, uh, rather than go straight into our wrap-up episode, however, we are going to release the N64 European launch episode. So that will be one of the bonus episodes between Series 6 and Series 7. Um, and then you will have the audio version of UCP Live tw- from 2023 and the Series 6 wrap-up. And then 10 episodes left. We do indeed. We have got 10 episodes of Series 7. What comes after that will be revealed down the line. But until then, I'll see you next time, everyone. Take care. Good night. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.